welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. In this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I'm joined by Jenny Garrett OBE, an award-winning career coach, leadership trainer, speaker, and author. In 2006, Jenny founded her business, Jenny Garrett Global, and now alongside her team works with individuals and organizations, supporting them to achieve career and life-changing results. Using their unique combination of skills around gender balance, leadership, inclusion, and self-improvement to inspire and empower. Jenny is well known for her work empowering working women, particularly female breadwinners, through her book, Rocking Your Role. Fairness and empowerment are at the heart of her work. She believes that when women thrive, we all do. She's also a regular commentator on Sky News and LBC Radio and has been featured on BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour, BBC Radio London and The Telegraph, amongst many others. Designing and delivering leadership programs to support staff from ethnically diverse groups in organisations is a real passion for Jenny and for us at Aurora. Providing talks on inclusive leadership, race and allyship and the creation of the first ever diverse executive coach directory and shining a light on coaches from black, Asian and minority ethnic heritage working at the most senior levels in the UK are among her proud achievements. Jenny's latest book is Equality Versus Equity, Tackling Issues of Race in the Workplace. And on today's episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion, I'm talking to Jenny about how we can increase representation of women and those from ethnically diverse backgrounds at senior levels. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion, Jenny. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to be here. Not as excited as me. I'm so excited. I'm talking (laughs) over you. Yeah, uh, this is such an important topic for for me, for Aurora, for virtually every black woman I've I've spoken to in the the last 18 months. The, The whole topic of how we can really resolve the racial equality equity issue in the workplace Mm. so I'm just very eager to get started could you tell us a little bit about your journey because it's been a really interesting one and a challenging one so could you tell us a little bit about how you've gotten to be Jenny Garrett OBE Oh goodness, we could go. That could be that could be your whole show. Um, <laughs> succinctly, succinctly. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, started off life in Northwest London. Uh, my parents are from the Caribbean, uh, Saint Lucia and Jamaica. Uh, my mum had me at a very young age, and uh, she was a teen mum, and she was a single parent. And I think uh, she was a very inspiring mum. In her thirties, she became a teacher. That inspired me to want to do a degree and study and recognize that the world was my oyster. Went into marketing in my first career, really loved it until one day a colleague who's now a really good friend Mm. just said, where next? Where are you going to go in your career? And I remember thinking, "Mm, I don't know. I thought I was, I thought I'd made it. (laughs) Um, And she suggested going on a coaching program that I found personally and professionally really transformational made me look at myself, my life, my decisions, everything else from a new perspective Mm. and really question 
what my motivation was for the things I was doing. Was I living someone else's dream or was I going for something that I really wanted? So I started to coach a little bit on some of the programs at the organization I worked for, but my role was as a marketer. And then through some coaching myself, decided to go freelance if I could earn enough money to do so. And that was about 17 years ago now. And my my business has grown from me being an individual freelancer to having employed staff and around 30 associates working with me. Our, our work is all about really unlocking the potential um, and breaking through glass ceilings, particularly with women and those from ethnically diverse backgrounds and helping all leaders to be inclusive and be great allies. Breaking glass ceilings. I I just am so in awe of people who are able to dedicate their lives to supporting other people to achieve their dreams. And breaking the glass ceiling is, it's a phrase that we trot out quite a lot, but having Mm. tried to do it myself, I know it's not that easy. Did you experience any challenges brought on your career journey brought about because of either your race or your gender or both? I think I've experienced lots. I would say that in the beginning of my career, I was maybe oblivious to things. So maybe you get missed over for an opportunity. Mm. You're a close second for a job interview. I saw it, but I didn't quite see it. And so sometimes people would point it out to me. Sometimes people would say, you know, that's really odd that that happened to you. And then I'd think about it a little bit more. But I I kind of went through life with sort of rose-coloured glasses. Um, But I remember um, one of my last roles there, we we were in a small office of marketing people. And uh, there was a a really great event coming up that the boss could bring a plus one to. They went round to every single person in the office, but me. So they went to somebody, they said, oh, no, I unfortunately can't make it. Next person, oh, no, I'd love to, but I can't make it what came to me just didn't ask Mm. and I remember a colleague just saying that's really weird that they didn't ask you isn't it and I just thought yeah it is there's absolutely no reason why they you know they wouldn't ask me I'm as enthusiastic as passionate as everyone else and that you know those sorts of feelings of being really excluded are, are quite horrible they're quite painful actually especially when you are in a small team and it's so clear that it's happening um so yeah i've and I've had lots of other experiences um some quite direct as well, where colleagues have come to me afterwards and said, you know the the person who's quite senior has uh, has really discriminated against you because of your race because of your ethnicity and and felt quite powerless to do something about it so in the example that you just gave about the boss who didn't even think to ask you to attend the event with him, did you say anything or ask him why he didn't ask I wasn't at that time I wasn't confident to do it I just I just took it really I just accepted they they don't want me to come along I'm not going to push it Mm -hmm. I would say I'm a different person now but um at that time I didn't do anything at all yeah your story just sounds so disturbingly familiar it's Mm -hmm. one that Mm -hmm. I personally identify with and even yesterday I was on on a call with someone who's going through the exact same thing and there's a there's a theme and a pattern in that mm. the discrimination or negative bias that we experience is never so explicit that we can yeah. solely and clearly attribute it to race other people mm. might do it on mm. our behalf but we yeah. can't prove it as fact and yeah. because we can't prove it as fact 
we tend to either ignore it or find some other reason for it, one that mm-hmm. we can do something about. Yes. And the more and more of these things that happen to you, you then start to internalize it. Maybe he didn't ask mm. me because he doesn't think I'm good enough. Maybe he doesn't think mm. I work hard enough. Or maybe he doesn't think mm. um, my uh, level of intellect is high enough. So I'm going to have to try mm. harder. And then he still doesn't invite you. And he still... So, yeah. so, and that is exactly what happened to me. I internalized all the little... Mm. The passing over for promotion time and time and time again. Mm. I internalized that as not me not being good enough. And it led to mm. me suffering with a mental breakdown... And I wondered if any of these discrimination events that happened to you, did they build up like that? Did they have an impact on your mental health and well-being? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. And I would say I, I'm not sure that they impacted my mental health in a big way. I think there are two things. I think that there are times when I've been really upset. So I went to a, a dinner once. It was I was speaking at an event and then there was a dinner at the end of it. I was wearing evening wear. So, you know, there was no Mm. doubt that I was a guest at this dinner sitting opposite a man who asked me where I where I like to go on holiday. And when I said I like to go on holiday everywhere because I want to see the world, he said, don't you go home? And I said, what do you mean? I was born in England. If Mm. you mean, do I go to the places of my heritage? Yeah, I like to go to St. Lucia in Jamaica, but I also like to go everywhere. And he kept pushing this. Don't you think you should go back home? You know, really uh overt behavior. And the people around me were squirming. And I found it quite hard to hold it together. And I remember just getting, you know, I sat through the dinner, but getting up as soon as I possibly could and being quite upset about how rude this person was, how overtly racist they were being. Mm -hmm. And how in that professional setting, I found it very difficult to have a comeback but also how the people around me weren't allies. Mm. They were sort of squirming and embarrassed, but they didn't do anything really to stop it. They did try to distract him a little bit, Mm. but he he wasn't having it. So I think that, you know, I've definitely been really upset by it. I worked in an organisation, another organisation, where everyone, there was a combination between the intersections of identity, being a woman, having a working class background and being a black woman, And I'd say what the biggest thing for me there was about not being able to be me. What people talked about doing, their life experience, their lived experience was so different to mine. I found myself trying to change to be accepted. To fit in. And that, and I think over a long period of time, that is detrimental. That is really detrimental. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had stayed there for a longer period of time, I think that would have damaged me with my mental health hmm. because it was, yeah, I had to, I felt I had to speak differently. I felt I had to talk about things that I didn't really have much lived experience of to be able to just engage in conversations with my colleagues. And it was very uncomfortable. So I think living with that discomfort and sort of covering my identity, if I'd kept it up for much longer, that would have been quite detrimental to me. Mm. It's That's an interesting point, because for me, I, I, I tussle between two camps as to how I should should have comported myself or should comport myself in being a black woman in predominantly Caucasian culture, right? So there's a bit of me 
because I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Saudi where there was really in the continental school I went to not one major dominant race. This was a school that celebrated everybody coming from different languages. There was an official day, continental day, where you'd come into school dressed in your national uniform with your parents, with national food, singing your national anthem. So there was pride in the difference and the ability to come together. It was like a mini United Nations. That was how I grew up seeing racial difference. To come to school in this country and then go to a private school in Bedfordshire where my sister and I were the two black kids in the school and I remember being chased down the hall with kids singing Mbongo, Mbongo, they drink it in the Congo. And see, Jen, because that was my first real experience of racism, aged 13, Mm. I didn't realise that was racism. I just kept Mm. thinking, I don't understand why they think I'm from the Congo. I'm not from the Congo. I'm from Nigeria. (laughs) So I (laughs) I didn't recognise it was racism. I just thought they, they were being mean. And it became increasingly apparent that I was going to need to change to fit in. And I'm sure there are many people of many different races who are now saying, well, I did that as well, including white people. Mm. I changed to fit in. Mm. We all changed to fit Mm. in. I think Mm. the idea of how much you have to change of yourself, but it did develop in me a kind of chameleon-like character where you can, you know, mimic different groups so that you can show some kind of empathy and identity with them, shared identity, so that you can be accepted. Yeah, I, yes. And I'm, I'm really not arguing with the idea of adapting to your environment or being an evolving person, mm-hmm. because who I am today is not who I was a year ago or 10 years ago. However, I think at the core... It should be your clear values and what's important to you. Yeah. And if you find yourself steering away from those strong values that, you know, your North Star, what what is important to Ngozi, what is important to Jenny? And if I find because of the environment I'm in, I'm moving away from that, that causes pain Mm. and that causes anxiety and it takes you away from your own well-being. And I think that's when there's an issue. And I think sometimes the ways in which we change mean that, when maybe we don't feel we can mention family when family is the biggest priority in our life. Mm. Because if we think about people from ethnically diverse backgrounds, quite often, not always, we look after older people in our families. Mm-hmm. In the UK, um, majority of white people, not they do look after their elderly relatives, but they might do that by putting them in some assisted living, for mm-hmm. example. Now, if I feel I can't talk about the caring I'm doing for my elderly relative because that doesn't quite fit with the norm, am I going away from what's really important to me? And as a result of that, how much pain does that cause me and how does that take me off track? So I think there's something about what are your strong values and is the adapting that you're doing taking you away from that? Mm. And also, is the adapting that you're doing dulling the very important things that you bring to the organisation? Yeah. So if I spend all of my time thinking I've got to say the right thing, I've got to look a certain way, I've got to behave in a certain way, how am I being my most productive self? 
how am I really showing up and contributing, giving the best ideas and all whatever it is I bring to the organization when half my brain is spent second guessing mm-hmm. all of my activity? Mm-hmm. It, and the answer is you're not, are you? Mm-hmm. So I think no. it's that it lies in whether you're adapting a little bit so that people can understand mm. you and you can understand them better or suppressing mm. your mm. true identity, your true self. And there's so mm. much focus on bring your whole self to work now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you don't feel comfortable being yourself because that mm-hmm. person is often overlooked or criticized or teased or alienated, then mm. you can't be the person that you you were hired to be. You can't be your true brilliant self. Exactly. And I think when you don't see anyone successful being that, you know, if you if you look around and and you look at the representation in your organization of people and the people who are senior who look like you, maybe don't behave in mm-hmm. what you might they don't seem to be being authentic, or there is no one who looks like you. These are messages that are being sent to us all the time. It's not okay to be you. It's not okay. It's not mm-hmm. okay to show up as you are. So there's lots of reasons why we don't do it. And that brings us really nicely to your new book. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Equality versus equity, tackling issues of race in the workplace. That's such a big topic, right? So big that it sold out within, yeah. what was it, <laughs> two months after it was released yeah. on Amazon? Yeah. Yes, yeah. But it's going into reprint? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so it's still available. It's back, it's back, it's back. Fantastic. (laughs) You're talking in the book about the concept of racial equity and understanding the importance of it in moving the dial up on inclusion and Mm. providing practical tips and language for the reader to act upon. And there was one really great analogy that you used to explain Mm. the difference between equity and equality and it involved a seesaw. Mm. Could you share it with our audience? Because it's just, it's Obi's favourite. And I think it's a much better one than the the steps. Yeah, I just, you know, when I was thinking about how to describe it in the book, I, you know, I want to make it as simple as possible um, because I think that's important for everyone. And I really wanted to illustrate it. And so many of us have been to a play park and been on a seesaw. So I thought, oh, that, or teeter-totter, as they say in Canada. I worked with a Canadian audience recently and they corrected me on what it's called in Canada. But it's the idea that in organisations, there are some people who have more power, more weight than others. And those who have more weight than others, um, if we are thinking about the seesaw, they are usually the majority group. Organisational life processes, systems have been designed for them. They know how to navigate it. They are successful in this space. And there are some people who are marginalised or minoritised who therefore are at the whim of that group. So if we think about the seesaw, The majority group has the weight and the minority group doesn't. And if you think about that image, that minority group then are sort of up in the air Mm -hmm. and at the whim of uh, that heavier group who could bump them. As a result, they could fall off the seesaw. And even if that majority group are trying to be kind and gentle, they might forget their own power. You can't do much about that because it's like an accident of birth. Some people are bigger, heavier than others. um, And and there's not a lot you can do about it. So we're not blaming anyone for being part of the majority group or being part of the minority group, but being aware that there's a power imbalance is a starting point. What we're trying to do with equity is think, how can we balance this up? 
that doesn't mean giving the same amount to everyone because if we did that we'd just reinforce the imbalance mm. so we start to think about what sandbags can we put uh, to support the those who are minoritized or marginalized so they can start to weigh the same and those things can look like sponsorship in organizations they can look like actually we've been asking for this qualification do we really need that? Can we not train the person when they get in to be able to do that thing? So it can look like finding the systems, the barriers that are getting in the way. It can be understanding that someone actually doesn't have the public speaking skills because they didn't go to private school. And actually, we, let's tap them on the shoulder. Let's invite them to that course so that when that job comes up, they'll be in a better position to be able to apply for that job in the same way as everyone else. So we're trying to balance the seesaw. And what happens when we're trying to do that is a couple of things. The people who've always had weight or power, um, you know, always been able to uh, direct what happens on that seesaw, sometimes can be resistant and fearful. Mm -hmm. As soon as you take that, that sort of power away from them, they can think, oh, my goodness, what does that mean for me? That means that I'm losing something, even though they're really not. And those who've never had it before now have these sandbags of support, but might start might not know how to use them. I don't know if you've ever been micromanaged, but if you have been ever been micromanaged and then you get this new leader who mm -hmm. says, let's be autonomous, let me like, do whatever you want to do. It's really hard to adapt because it's like, oh, no one's checking what I'm doing. No one's looking over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite used to this. And, and that can happen, I think, when you're from a, a minoritized or marginalized group that you think, can I trust that I'm now getting the support? Can I really feel safe enough to make the most of it? Actually, maybe they're asking me to talk about race and ethnicity, and I've never even articulated this in the workplace before. I need to find my own language to talk about it. So these things can happen. But what we're trying to get to is this place where we do have this balance on the seesaw. We're both the same weight. And then we work together with the push and pull. We sort of say, you go up, I go down, and we share power. And when we get to that point, we're really working, we're really creating an inclusive environment. I guess what's missing from that image is that if you think about it as a play park, some children don't have a play park even in their vicinity. They've never been on a seesaw because of um, you know, their situation, the difficulties in their lives, the way they're being brought up. And some children get to the gates at the play park and parents say, don't play with that one. They're the naughty one. They're the ones who cause trouble. And, you know, they don't even get that opportunity to be in. And I think that we're trying to create this balance in the workplace through equity, through, you know, through balancing things up. But we have to remember that a lot happens in society. A lot has happened in people's lives. That mean even when they get into your workplace, they have all of that, all of that lived experience, mm -hmm. all of those challenges mm -hmm. to overcome. So just because you say, oh, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you that, doesn't mean they instantly respond because actually they understand the tightrope of experience that they live on, you know, go one way too much to the left, one way to the right too much, and they could fall. Their situation feels more precarious. Mm. And I think that there is one big dilemma on this topic. It's that push and pull of social equity where as a marginalized person or a global majority, ethnic mm -hmm. minority in this country, you're, you're torn between the kind of just keep your head down, don't cause trouble, just, you know, do good work and it will be recognized approach. Mm -hmm. And the, you have to demand and 
break down the door, break the glass ceiling and disturb the peace if you want to move forward. What do you think about this? What's your take on it? Yeah, I think if there's something important about culture and where your organisation is. Um, so I've been working with some great organisations where right from the top, they are saying we want to change things. We know we don't have representation and, and we want to make it happen. Yeah. And I think that those organizations that are committed over a long period of time and understand the injustice in society and want to do something about it, I think you should be banging on the door. I think if you're a lone voice in an organization um, trying to bang on the door, I think that's a tough ask. I think that's really tough. And I think you have to manage your well-being and your resilience. And there has to be a lot of self-care around that. And I would really say you can't do it on your own. Mm. You have to build a community of allies around you who really believe in you and can advocate and support you. But trying to do that on your own is, yeah, to change culture when you are in a minority and you're the only one you'd have to find a real source of power. Maybe you bring in millions of pounds. Maybe you hold the relationship with a really important client mm. to be re really able to change things. But a lone voice on your own is very tough and I think pretty soul-destroying. You need to be in an organisation that is committed to making change because even those organisations really struggle. But yeah, if you're in an organisation that's not there, this is tough. And what I would suggest is, Yes, you can make small inroads, but the, the idea is really build your allies, build mm. the people who get it and get them to do a lot of the work because doing it on your own, ooh, yeah, just thinking about it makes me, gives me tension in my shoulders <laughs> uh, knowing how hard that is. It's often an expectation that you, as the person who's most impacted by it, need to somehow take up the mantle of being the the Rosa Parks of the workplace. Mm. And, you know, mm. this is your fight to fight. We'll back you up, mm. but it's your fight to fight. Yeah. Whereas in experience, my experience and the experience of many of the women and black men and women I've spoken to, that's not how it actually plays out in reality. Rosa Parks was forced to give up her seat yeah. in reality in the mm. workplace. So mm. the idea that we can somehow do everything just because we've got a an, an ERG that's like the black and ethnic group and therefore we are the ones who are responsible for making our workplaces more fair is, is, um, is frankly ludicrous. And it does, I think, really require the support and coalition of your allies, as you say. It needs, mm. it needs to come from the majority who are demanding equity for all. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. Yeah. And just the thing, you know, about employee resource groups, mm. you do it voluntarily, you put a lot into it. Yeah. I think, you know, when we think about the well-being aspect of it, um, usually people don't get any time off or any money mm -hmm. for doing this. It's on top of the day job. And I think it's a lot. And, I, and I, I definitely think that people should manage the expectations and be really strategic about their involvement. I think it should be a great support network but really use their energies to strategically influence the organization about what they should be doing um, rather than a lot of scattergun activities which exhaust you and don't necessarily move the dial. And I think the issue with that is that just like with well-being, mm. very few people know how to be strategic on this topic. 
particularly the people who are in charge of promoting diversity, equity and inclusion within the workplace. They are sometimes at a loss. They have typically been under-resourced, so they don't have Mm. huge budgets or even large enough budgets or big enough teams to do the work Mm. of 10 men. So what would you recommend to, to those people would be the first place they can start with trying to balance the seesaw so that those dangling their legs at the top have a bit more weight? Yeah, I think that is a difficult question to answer in terms of what you should do first. But I guess the first thing is to understand what, where your problems are, where are your pain points. Mm. So survey your staff, look at your data, analyze it and understand, you know, how do people feel um, and what's missing? And I think that messages from the top are very important. Um, if an organization is that committed to to change, they should resource it, um, whether that's financially or through people. So I would look for the pain points and then work towards them because there are so many things you can do. Is it just we need more conversations and we need to do something ourselves, which is have book clubs and TED talks? Or is it that we need a full blown program? Um, you know, what is it that we need to be happening? So mm-hmm. I think that it starts with understanding the, the problem. Yeah, that's exactly where we start when we go into organizations is discovery. It's the first pillar because Mm -hmm. there's so many assumptions made about, oh, this will work because I saw this and I read this book and Mm -hmm. that sounded really cool when they did it in Coca-Cola. So let's do it here. And it doesn't it doesn't fly. It doesn't work. So, yeah, I'd fully agree with you. Another thing that I've been thinking, Jenny, is about this analogy that I came up with, which is let's call it affirmative bias. Yes, affirmative bias is a form of racism, but I want to to reassure people that everybody has an as a bias. Its bias is natural, right? It's just the way we protected ourselves when we have no other information. So people have an affirmative bias. We feel safer and more comfortable with things that are familiar to us, people who are familiar to us and who therefore look like us. And I was thinking racism in the workplace, discrimination, affirmative bias, they are, they're a, it's a two-headed beast. And mm. I feel as if we've been historically, and even now, we, we spend a lot of time focused on tackling one of the heads of the beast, which is focusing a lot on entry level. So have we got enough mentorship schemes for young black teens? And do we have uh, apprenticeship programs? And what universities are we going to? And all of the stuff entry level and nothing at the other side, which Mm. is, you know, I had the privilege to speak with Andy Burnham recently about this exact topic and I was saying sometimes it cannot always be me as the lone wolf trying to break the glass ceiling sometimes it's going to have to be you pushing down and pulling me through Mm, absolutely have you seen Mm. any organizations who have really understood that and who are doing the work of tackling racism at the real senior levels and representation at senior levels of ethnic minorities so that things start to balance out at the top levels? 
Yes, I think one of the things that we're advocating and working with some organisations on is the sponsorship programme. So either a full programme that incorporates sponsorship or a sponsorship programme where the senior leaders are sponsoring someone who's just uh, just below wherever their glass ceiling is mm-hmm. and, and their aim is to advocate them and pull them through. So we've worked with quite a lot of organisations in that way and it does really work and that's what you need. You know, you talked about affinity bias, affirmative action. And there's some research done by the Lean In Foundation Mm -hmm. that says 59% of black women have never had an informal conversation with a senior leader. Mm -hmm. So that means 59% of black women, therefore, are never going to get a sponsor because your sponsorship comes from those informal conversations with senior leaders. And so if you can formalise it and make senior leaders talk to people from from the global majority and advocate for them and support them knowing they are talent they are much more likely then to increase representation so it's it's really then it's counteracting that affinity bias Mm -hmm. it's saying you would normally sponsor that person because they look like you they went had the same education they love the same sports but actually what we're going to do is we've told you this person's talented and you're going to do what you would have done for that person who you wouldn't naturally have advocated for. And we've seen it be really powerful and really make a difference. It helps to challenge bias, helps people to understand each other's lived Mm -hmm. experience, but it also then opens up those opportunities which people haven't known about shadowing or attending meetings and demystifying what it's like in the boardroom or hearing about projects that are coming up earlier on Mm -hmm. so they can be prepared and positioned for those projects. So absolutely, we do work with organisations to to do that. And some do a really good job. We mostly have to sign NDAs yeah. <laughs> with organisations, but we've been working with them. Um, yeah, one of the one of the top supermarkets. Um, and we've been doing some really great work with them. We've also been working with some county councils and we can yeah, working with Coventry Council and Wolverhampton mm-hmm. Council. And we're working with West Midlands employers and all of that, everything we do incorporates those senior leaders and enables them to really challenge and think about what does talent look like? I thought it looked like this, sounded like this, was educated in this way, but actually I was wrong. Mm. Uh, Can you explain just to our audience the difference between sponsorship and mentorship? Absolutely. And I think it's a great question because what the research says is those from the global majority, they are over mentored and under sponsored. Mm. Okay. So what that means is you get a lot of advice, mm-hmm. a suggestion, encouragement. Um, you know, you get all of those things. That is all great stuff. You can do it. Here's some ideas. Here's what I did. But you don't get anyone, which is sponsorship, you don't get anyone saying, actually, you know what, speak to this person in my network. I think they can give you an opportunity. Come along to this meeting, because I think if you're in this meeting, you'll get the exposure. Oh, I'm going to to a space where they're talking about a new project. You're not allowed in that room, but I'm going to mention your name Mm -hmm. so that they think of you. And it's really active. It's, you know, a sponsor wears your t-shirt. If I was your sponsor and goes, it's like, Ngozi, you know, Team Ngozi is on my T-shirt and wherever I'm traveling, I'm advocating for you. Um, So it's a really active role where I am taking an active role in helping you move forward in your career. Whereas a mentor is much more quite a passive role, really. Right. I'm supporting you and I'm encouraging you. But, you know, I'm not going out of my way to open doors for you. 
I'm, I'm telling you to do that yourself. But it's really hard when you are in the global majority to do that because those doors aren't necessarily open to you because you you look different, you sound different. They're, they're not associating you with the kind of talented people that they might have uh, seen go through the doors before. They might see you as a risk because uh, it might be a little bit more unpredictable for them because mm-hmm. they haven't got a track record of people from the global majority going through their ranks. So it's really about someone saying, sponsors putting themselves on the line and saying you know what I believe in this person you should too and that's that's a very different thing to having a mentor I think it's it's just so much more proactive and practical Mm. and it's exactly the kind of thing that it doesn't cost money but it does take a good understanding of how to implement the program what a sponsor's responsibilities and duties are how mm. they can be more effective in promoting individuals from minority ethnic backgrounds. And yeah, but it's something that there's no reason, I suppose, why any organization that has an issue with racial balance at the top levels can't do sponsorship. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'll give you an example. On one of, our, um, one of our programs, there was a senior leader who was sponsoring someone and he checked himself really and said, previously, we'd passed this person over because we just thought mm, they're not quite confident. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. And he said by sponsoring them, he realized that they had a bit of imposter syndrome, but really saw all of their talents and was quite disappointed in himself that he hadn't seen the person's talent before. Mm. But by the end of the program, that person was promoted. And it just took the scales off his eyes, really, about what talent looks like mm. and the misinterpretation. You know, how how a white man behaves, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but it might be different to how a South Asian woman behaves. And that doesn't mean that they're not equally talented. It's just different. And it's about appreciating this difference like they did in your school. That sort of, you all bring something and it doesn't all have to look the same. And that's good. Oh, I love that. And that's such a great note to end on. But before I let you go, I just want to ask you our signature question. No. Okay. Don't worry. It's not as painful as it sounds. That's okay. I'm up for it. <laughs> oh, so now she says, okay. So as a fellow wellbeing rebel, Jenny, what is the one change that you would like to see implemented in workplace wellbeing? Does it really have to be one? No, you can have, because you're special, I'll let you have a few. Right. So great. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I think the first thing is that Every job should be flexible. Every job should be advertised as flexible. And then when you get the right person, ask them how they want to work. Mm -hmm. That would be the first thing that I would change. Just actually, if you think I'm talented, whether I'm working two days a week or five days a week, shouldn't matter. What should matter is that you see me as talent. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is, I think that we all just need to breathe. So I, I did this positive intelligence course recently. Ooh, and I'm it, doing that. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. This, this idea of just taking these moments to breathe and connect with your body. Mm. Uh, it's so, so, so important. So I think that idea of just helping people take moments to breathe Mm. why don't we have enough space between teams meetings why are we jumping from one to another without a breath how can we create environments where actually someone says I need 10 minutes before we start this meeting to go for a walk to um, get a drink of water 
to just breathe mm. and then I'll be my best self for you. Mm. Why can't we normalize that? And I, th I think we no need to normalize people taking a bit of time out for themselves, just a few minutes to reconnect and then be their best selves. So uh, yeah, I'll leave it at two. I think those are two two important things that organizations can do. I love that. And that last one about taking a moment and not going back to back and back on meetings. There's an or mm. there are several organizations who've who've started implementing the 45 or 55 minute meeting or 25 minute mm. meeting rule so that there are five, 10, 15 minutes between meetings. And I've even started doing that myself in that mm. if you book a meeting in my calendar through my link in calendar Lee, and there is a 15 minute buffer before and after a meeting to try and give me that window so I'm not doing so many back-to-backs. Mm -hmm. And it's just that recognition of the fact that we are all human. Exactly. Um, as uh, I think it's Deepra, Deepak Chopra says, we are human beings, not, not human, human doing. doing. I love it. Oh. Yeah. So, we, so we need to be, yeah. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been an absolute pleasure and lots of fantastic insights. We're going to, of course, include links to purchase your book and to connect with you and to reach out because who wouldn't want to work with you? Honestly, brilliant. Thank yeah. you so Thank much. You. Thanks. I look forward to lots more conversations with you in the future. Yeah, she's coming back, guys. She's coming back. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.